Kia and welcome to a podcast from the Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey. It is Wednesday the 20th of October. This is a special one because I wanted to focus on a really big announcement you've probably heard about, a bipartisan deal between Labour and National to remove some of the restrictions in the current Resource Management Act. And the way they plan to do it is to alter something called the uh, Urban Development National Policy Statement, or the NPSUD, so that anyone who has a house in an urban area will be able to bowl a house and put three new houses on the section up to three storeys high without a resource consent. Now, this is potentially a game changer for housing supply. And a uh, analysis put out with this announcement reckoned you could see significant numbers of houses built over the next 20 or 30 years, potentially over 100,000 houses, even in the next uh, eight years or so. That would really change the game if it happened. Uh, and it seems to you know, remove some of the roadblocks to growth that are happening in the housing supply. And it's one of the major problems our economy has. You might recall, I've said a few times, we, have, uh, we don't have an economy, we have a housing market with bits tacked on. And that's largely because our housing supply is not as elastic or responsive to house prices. There's a bunch of reasons for that. Um, councils have been very reluctant to allow development, either actually on the edge of town or in the middle of town, frankly, just about anywhere. And there's some reasons for that, which are actually good reasons. Uh, and understandable reasons, and perhaps misunderstood reasons, which mean that councils haven't done that. Um, particularly, they are reluctant to spend lots of cash, and usually have to borrow money to do it, lots of cash on infrastructure for housing and public transport and lots of other things. The reason being, um, their ratepayers, firstly, don't want them to take on lots of debt. They think it's a bad idea. And secondly, there are rules set by the government related to the Public Finance Act, which mean that councils can't borrow much more than about 280% of their revenues. Now, that is a limit which some councils are getting close to. Auckland, in particular, is right up against that limit. Now, why am I going into the depths of infrastructure funding and how this uh, affects the housing supply. Well, hold on, um, I'll explain this in a moment. But just to make the point that this announcement, if it was supported by lots of infrastructure spending by the government itself through NZTA and by councils on roads and pipes, would actually make a big difference and is potentially the supply shock that could at least slow house price inflation, if not actually turn house prices down. But this is the problem. Uh, when you look a bit closer at what both National and Labour are saying about infrastructure funding for councils, you can see this is something of a hollow announcement. It's a pity because often the most uh, 
long-lasting and substantial changes in policy settings are ones that are effectively done in a bipartisan way because you can be sure when you change it, it's not going to be changed back later on. And often that is enough to change expectations of people. And in many ways, that actually does the work of the policy change you're trying to bring through. And there have been plenty of examples of it over the years. For those who haven't been around long enough, um, there's there's a couple that really are good examples of how bipartisan law changes or agreements have um, really made a huge impact. For example, in 1999, when Labour came in with New Zealand First, we saw uh, Winston Peters uh, um, get an agreement out of the then Labour government in which uh, it agreed that the New Zealand superannuation payment would always be 66% of the average wage for a couple and uh, that there would be no means testing. Eventually, National agreed to that as well, and effectively it settled a huge debate that we'd been having through the 90s along the lines of should we try to cut back the pension and um, is it is it high enough and should the pension be means tested? That was effectively taken off the table by that agreement, which um, has been essentially agreed by both main parties. Uh, apart from a, a wee quirk at the last election when the national government under Bill English suggested very slow increases in the age of eligibility, essentially that agreement for 66% of the average wage unmeans tested New Zealand super is embedded in our structure. No one in the middle is suggesting changing it. And it has a huge impact. Every year, government spending increases by several billion dollars just from that announcement alone. Secondly, the Resource Management Act was a bipartisan job as well. In 1989, Geoffrey Palmer, the then Labour Prime Minister, uh, and really one of the intellectual and legal powerhouses behind that uh, fourth Labour government, Um, got the whole Resource Management Act process started. He didn't finish it. It was eventually finished by Simon Upton, the national minister who ushered that through Parliament and who, coincidentally, is now the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment. And that Resource Management Act obviously changed the way New Zealand operated, particularly with local government. It meant that if um, a government department or... Uh, some large interest wanted to build something next to you or change uh, anything really, and particularly in um, an urban or even a rural environment, uh, you were able to block it by appealing um, uh, under the uh, Resource Management Act uh, to the Environment Court. Effectively, the RMA gave a veto uh, for anyone uh, with any interest in that particular piece of land or uh, area to essentially block that development simply by delaying it um, heavily. And the RMA is often blamed as the the main reason why we haven't got a lot of housing built. I'll come back to this in a second. I'm increasingly of the view the RMA is not the problem. But um, so uh, we've got this big announcement that under the National Policy Statement for Urban Development, there'll be a new rule which essentially says if you've got a section, a single house section, you can put three three three-storey homes on it. 
Now, at the moment, uh, particularly in Auckland, under the Auckland Unitary Plan, for those who've been following this debate, it was a really controversial thing that uh, went down in 2016, which at the time looked like a major victory for the densifiers, the young, um, often renting activists who were trying to get lots of houses built. As it turned out, um, there was a last-minute rejig, which meant a lot of those single-house, standalone. Um, traditional villa villas on a section um, suburbs such as Ponsonby, Greyland, Mount Eden, Parnell, Remuera, um, they were effectively carved out of the Auckland Unitary Plan, apart from a few bits and pieces here and there, and it's meant that um, those areas have not been built up or are not likely to be built up under the Auckland Unitary Plan. This change would bring that into play. So not just in Auckland, but in the likes of Mount Victoria, uh, Thorndon, Kelburn, Mount Cook, Newtown in Wellington, Maryvale, Fendleton and Christchurch. Uh, that is potentially open slather. So it looks pretty exciting. If you're interested in building lots of houses, pretty scary if you don't want those houses built. And the initial reaction from the activists was, yay! The initial reaction from the NIMBYs was, boo! And um, quite a few people even in business are saying, wow, this is great, we might actually get some houses built for our workers to live in. However, um, there are a few problems here. And I wanted to play you some clips from the press conference yesterday. Um, is essentially me asking some questions of Megan Woods and Judith Collins, who are on the Beehive uh, Theatrette stage, which is a big deal in itself. This hasn't happened since 2007, this sort of bipartisan announcement. Back then it was John Key and Helen Clark announcing that they would jointly push through the anti-smacking legislation. Many people credited that as a, a real sign that John Key was a different type of politician able to mobilise middle New Zealand. And some people are quite excited about the Judith Collins one as well. Uh, hang in there, I'll explain why I don't think it's quite as big a deal. But um, here's, a, here's me asking a question, firstly of Megan Woods, but I also put the question to Judith Collins. This essentially is asking, how serious are you as a bipartisan group about delivering a supply shock, extra houses, in a way that would improve housing affordability. And remember, house prices are now so high and inflation is so high that to really improve affordability anytime soon, you'd actually need to see house prices fall. Firstly, do you expect this to deliver a supply shock that you would like to see drive house prices lower? So the, the estimate um, of the number that this will enable, this is the medium density will enable over and above what the MPSUD would be according to the cost benefit analysis is between 48,500 and 1,500. The midpoint of the around the 75,000 is actually called a conservative number in the cost benefit analysis. So I think that we will see the capacity for more supply. We know that we do have a housing shortage um, and that is one of the things um, that is driving um, the crisis that we're seeing in New Zealand, uh, in New Zealand housing. We don't see this as um, simply a supply and demand problem. We know that there's some other underlying factors, and that's where this fits into our program around housing in terms of infrastructure investment. 
support? What we want to do is we certainly want to see the enabling of more affordable houses being built and what this will do will allow it, that we have planning rules in some parts of our cities that act actively stop a typology that is affordable for people to purchase. I think we just come over here now. We'll, we'll do... Oh, sorry, yes. Okay, so um, obviously this deals with land and people getting consents to build. What it doesn't do is it doesn't actually get the houses built. So there are other things involved in it, and those are things that the um, are for another day, which is around building supplies, training, trades, all those sorts of things, all of which are important to getting a house built. In terms of value, I think what we'll find is that there will be some people who will feel that their um, their lawn is now something of value. Um, and that goes to Richard Harmon's point that some people will find that they can sell that lawn. Um, but in terms of house prices, do I think that that's going to suddenly bring about a drop? No, I don't see this as a supply shock. What I do believe is, is a, a, a shot in the arm to make sure that the country doesn't continue down a path whereby housing is something that other people own and our kids get to rent. So you can uh, hear there uh, from the opposition leader that um, not that keen on uh, such a supply shock that would push down prices, but um, certainly they seem serious about um, getting a lot more houses built. Uh, however, uh, later on, I got a chance to ask Megan Woods a few questions about infrastructure funding and a particular issue that um, stops a lot of councils from uh, agreeing to uh, pay for the pipes and the roads and, and the parks that are needed whenever you increase housing supply in an area, um, either through a brand new suburb or by intensifying development in a particular area. Because you can't just you know, go from 200 people on a street to 600 people on a street. You've got to make sure there's buses and trains and cycleways and walkways and that there's an extra park. Otherwise, that's an awful lot of dog poo in one small park as 600 people walk round and round it. So it's not just a matter of whacking up the houses. You've got to have the cooperation and the involvement and the infrastructure spending of the councils. And a whole bunch of them at the moment um, don't believe, actually, that they get the money back uh, in any quick time from rates. And uh, they would like some extra revenue tools to be able to fund the debt and one of the issues around that is that um, they're only allowed to borrow up to 280% uh, net debt relative to their revenues. And of course, that's limited by how much they can get in rates and the odd parking ticket or two. And many of them are quite stressed at the moment for obvious reasons, which is uh, COVID has um, meant they haven't got much in the form of um, parking fees. And of course, you know, there's been some extra costs as well, and that has limited their revenues and forced them to cut spending in some areas. So they're very reluctant to spend money on infrastructure. There is a view amongst councils that the real winners from extra houses and extra people are the central government itself through income, income tax receipts and GST receipts, which come immediately, whereas councils often have to wait and wait for the houses to be built and the people to move in and to get their rates. They don't believe that growth actually pays for growth. And this has been a, 
a um, an area of real concern for councils and a debate point between governments and councils for decades, unfortunately, and the losers are the people in the middle because the money doesn't get spent. So I asked Megan Woods, are you going to relax the council's debt limits? Uh, currently, the local government funding agency sets those limits, and that is run by Treasury, effectively, the government. So will the government re release those debt limits? Here's me asking Megan Woods that question. To be out here. Um, Minister, um, are, are you looking at uh, changing the debt restraints for councils, which they say stop them from building the infrastructure for this densification? Because one of the problems in the past is that developers say they want to build these houses, but then the council says, here's a monstrous development contribution charge because we can't afford to borrow the money, the government won't let us. So what are you going to do about these debt limits for councils? So that, that isn't on the agenda at the moment, Bernard. Um, of course, what we have done is actually say um, that the money that we, we're um, working with councils on is not in the form of the loan, and often for the very reason that you outline. Um, that in terms of just adding more to the to the debt side of councils isn't the way to achieve this, because it doesn't allow it doesn't allow the kind of investment that we need. That's why it's direct grant payments. So uh, we're working through those expressions of interest, and we'll have more announcements to make about direct funding, which isn't about enabling councils tomorrow more. Just half a half a question. Sorry, David, you go. Yeah, can I just add to that? Again, the cost-benefit analysis goes through this issue very, very carefully. And it shows that overall infrastructure costs are lower when you do this, including transport yeah. and water infrastructure overall, than if you don't. So if you, if you apply that lens to it, this is actually helping councils save costs rather than creating more costs. The underlying pressure for housing is neither caused by central government or local government, but we've both got to accommodate it. This is a more cost-effective way of doing so. Thank you. Right. Just one very last question from Janae. That is seriously the last one. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of the um, infrastructure, I mean, councils are saying that that fund is, is not enough and there are more applications than there are money available. Um, and there are those debt limits. I mean, this seems like another piece of the puzzle that could be solved quite easily to, to just put some more money on the table for infrastructure. I don't want to sound like, you, you know, there's lots of money around, but, but why not sort of well, I think, Janae, one of the most important things we have to do is work through the expression of interest we have now um, to have a look what is actually ready to go, what is going to be ready to go in these Tier 1 areas and match that to housing need. So we've always said that we, we, under, we fully understood that $3.8 billion was not going to fully solve the problems for New Zealand, but what we certainly want to be able to do is to work through this in a robust and rigorous way. Thank you very much. So that's Megan Woods there uh, talking about whether the $3.8 billion housing infrastructure fund, which is money granted to councils to build infrastructure, is enough. She seems to be suggesting that she accepts that um, it won't be enough in the long run. The, the one reason it's not enough is that there actually needs to be a couple of hundred billion dollars spent over the next 10 to 20 years, not just preparing for the growth to come and reorganising our transport system to deal with climate change, but also just filling the hole, about $75 billion of infrastructure that hasn't been built over the last 30 years, um, in large part, I think, because 
of an approach that both main parties took in the late 1980s through the 90s, in fact right up till now, where they have chosen not to invest heavily in infrastructure for housing and transport because the Public Finance Act and the, um, the agreement between the major parties around that has meant that governments have tried to reduce the amount of investment that they put into these um, areas because um, it allows them to keep their government debt low, which is what the Public Finance Act wants, and keeps interest rates lower than they otherwise would be. Um, from a voter point of view, if you own a home, this means that there hasn't been extra supply come onto the market. And at the same time, interest rates have fallen. So you've won both ways. You don't have extra supply coming on and keeping control of prices. And secondly, lower interest rates means an inevitable uh, windfall, big gain in tax-free values for your asset. So um, in summary, uh, the government and the opposition haven't necessarily come up with a way to deal with the need for extra infrastructure to go with these extra houses, even the intensified ones that are going to be built. And uh, so that wasn't positive. So by about an hour after um, the announcement, it, it didn't look to me like one of these epic world-changing announcements that sometimes you see with um, a bipartisan deal like this. And remember, we haven't seen one like this for 14 years. So... Uh, the coup de grace for me, the reason um, I don't really see this as a major change, came uh, at 1.52, so that's 112 minutes after the initial bipartisan deal, when Judith Collins put out a statement in her name saying that a national government would repeal the Three Waters reforms and hand back to councils the assets and the debt that were shifted from council balance sheets to the new Three Waters bodies. Now, for those who haven't been following this debate, this is all about um, the government looking to amalgamate dozens and dozens of water authorities which are embedded within councils into four large, essentially century-run and crown-backed, well, I'm going to say crown, central government-backed uh, water authorities. And the idea here is that um, the government would take uh, assets and debt off the council balance sheets and put them into these new vehicles. And that new spending on water, in particular wastewater, stormwater and sewage, would, uh, would go uh, from these vehicles and save councils having to do it. In theory also, because uh, for most councils who don't charge for water, this effectively takes debt off their balance sheets and leaves them with the same revenue, i.e. gives them more borrowing capacity. There is an exception here, though. Auckland has water care and it does have charges. And it's one of the reasons, extra reasons that Auckland is not keen on this idea because it would essentially take water care's assets and its debt out of the balance sheet of Auckland. And water care generates revenue. So when that happens, it also takes out the capacity for the Auckland Council to borrow, effectively using the revenues from water care to amplify the amount of debt it can take on and infrastructure uh, for infrastructure funding for new growth. And uh, it's one of the issues with Three Waters that makes it a difficult one um, because it appears 
the Auckland Council has effectively used water care to help subsidise infrastructure spending across the uh, council um, balance sheet, and uh, that's probably a good thing. Uh, and also, water care is being used to collect some pretty juicy uh, development contribution charges. Um, and uh, so that means if National are essentially saying they would scupper three waters, which is where the government would force through the creation of these water authorities, then effectively that removes a big chunk of borrowing capacity for the councils, which they would need to fund the infrastructure to go with all these houses. So yet again, we're back at square one, where the real reason our houses are not being built is that both the central and our and the local government have restricted themselves over a period of 30 years from not investing in infrastructure. And remember, a great way to invest in infrastructure is to borrow money for a 20 or 30 or 50 year period and pay back the debt, service the debt over the next 50, 100 years or so. And that matches an asset which is used by future generations. This is the best way to fund infrastructure. Everyone agrees this. But the way that the Public Finance Act was set up in 1989, back when interest rates were very, very high, and the political mood at the time was that reducing government debt was the most important thing you could do. Now, increasing government debt is the most important thing you can do to deal with these intergenerational challenges such as housing affordability and climate change. The structure we have at the moment, underpinning our entire governmental operations and investments and plans for the future, are based on 1989 thinking about what's happening in the debt markets, how risky debt is, and how high interest rates are. Back then, interest rates were double-digit. Now, they're maybe 2% for a 10-year government bond. And it makes an awful lot of sense to borrow to build long-term infrastructure that benefits future generations. Essentially, this generation of voters and politicians are choosing not to invest in the future because it makes them richer now. What it means is that a government is relatively smaller, it can afford tax cuts, and as it turns out in New Zealand, in the New Zealand context, because we don't tax capital gains and our banks are very good at lending money against housing, that it weaponizes having a very inelastic housing supply. So when you have an increase in demand, maybe from migration, or maybe because interest rates have fallen, the effect you get on house prices and on leveraged equity, tax-free leveraged equity for homeowners, is extraordinary. And changing that status quo, changing that engine for wealth creation at the expense of future generations, is a big deal. So when people saw this announcement yesterday, they thought, whoa, this is a big deal. But it didn't come with the infrastructure funding changes that are needed to make it happen. The irony here is that the one politician coming out against this deal the hardest was David Seymour. Now, on first glance, this looks rather hypocritical for David Seymour to come out against effectively gutting the RMA 
are to allow house building everywhere. Uh, he has campaigned in the past to essentially repeal the RMA and allow freedom to reign, allow landowners to do whatever they want on their land. Uh, however, when the government and National have effectively called his bluff by saying, right, we're going to get rid of this rule so you can build not pretty much anything you want, but certainly three townhouses is a lot, three stories high, um, this should be something that David Seymour loves, right? Well, of course, many of his constituents in the Epsom electorate do not want anything built on their boundary that shades their backyard. And so um, Epsom's voters have traditionally been against um, lots of new development in Epsom. It's a classic case of, um, yes, we like growth, but just not near us, and we don't want to pay for it. So um, Dave Seymour has come out uh, against this proposal. Now, he's accused of being hypocritical, um, but he does rightly point out that uh, this, this deal doesn't come with the infrastructure funding changes needed to really make it stick. And ACT has um, proposed, as recently as July, that councils get about half of the GST that comes back to the government uh, through new building materials to do with house building. And this would give councils a bit of extra reliable revenue stream that's very closely linked to uh, house building that they could use to increase their debts. ACT has also proposed the creation of a nation-building fund, a public-private partnership, which would effectively raise debt and impose user charges to service that debt to um, build the infrastructure, transport uh, and public infrastructure so that this housing um, uh, funding problem is fixed. So um, ACT are, um, I don't think, being particularly um, cynical or um, flip-floppy about this. They're rightly pointing out that we haven't dealt with the infrastructure funding issues. So, in summary, yesterday's big announcement of the new um, median density overlay for the National Policy Statement Urban Development which is going to come in quite quick and in fact, in fact brings forward the NPSUD by about a year. And from August next year, we could see people rightly saying, right, I'm going to build three three-story townhouses on my uh, section and you can't do anything about it because it's a permitted activity and you can't just appeal to the Environment Court to stop it. That's from August next year. However, the risk here is that councils um, find other ways to block this development. And if you're looking for an example of how this works, uh, you might recall the announcement from the government earlier this year in which they decided not to fund a big motorway and various other developments in Drury, which underpinned plans for a bunch of new suburbs. Uh, the government at the time said that it couldn't really afford uh, to spend all this extra money on motorways, particularly since the cost of those motorways had risen, in part because of rising land prices. There's a nice little feedback loop there. And uh, um, said it just wouldn't fund for the infrastructure. Now remember, infrastructure is funded half government, half council. So then the council was up for the total bill. So to ensure that no one actually was able to use the residential zoning that the council has created over the years, the council increased its development contributions for these 
uh, sections from $11,000 to $89,000, which the Property Council and a bunch of developers have complained about. Effectively, the council is using its various tools to ensure things aren't built there. And uh, we're back, back at square one. Council doesn't want to borrow. Ratepayers don't want the debt. They certainly don't want to pay money to build suburbs somewhere else. The government doesn't want to pay. Why? Because the Public Finance Act says that it needs to run surpluses at all times except for the most extreme crises. And we're back where we started, which is chronic, structural, underinvestment in housing infrastructure has shifted a trillion dollars in wealth from future generations and current renters to the current owners of houses. And the government likes it exactly that way. Of course, it wants to indicate that it wants to solve this problem, but actually doesn't take the actions. Now, it may not know that it really needs to take those actions. Uh, there's a lot of groupthink involved with the Public Finance Act. Everyone thinks, well, there's nothing you can do to change this. This is a an agreed societal position that low government debt is the right thing. But it hasn't really adjusted to the changes in the underlying market for debt and for interest rates. And the fact that the bond vigilantes were euthanized in the mid-2010s or so, and fund managers all over the world are desperate to lend money to governments to do exactly this, to build cities and ensure that they are ready for climate change or at least reduce emissions for climate change and that people have affordable houses because that's the only way really you're going to build a strong and stable and productive economy. I'm Bernard Hickey. It is Wednesday the 20th of October. That was a special um, podcast uh, from the Kaka. <laughs>